Hello, everyone. Welcome to. Um, we're really yes for the start of season two, and uh, blessed to have Dr. Emily with us here today. Um, someone I got to know over on the social audio app. Someone who I read a lot of her tweets, and yep, she is a psychologist, an expert in human behavior, and um, in psychoanalytic psychologist. Who, which we'll find more about, and also co-founder of COA, a mental health um, that started up and is doing super well. So um, the concept of emotional fitness was something I learned from Koa and, and Dr. Emily, and it's super interesting. We're gonna, today we're going to be diving into all sorts of things, focusing a bit on relationships, mental health, what the future of therapy is, should people get therapy, and a bit about Koa as well, and Dr. Emily and her background as well. So I'm super stoked for this one. So if you are listening, feel free you can come ask questions as well. We're going to go for about 30 minutes, and it's going to be high impact, high octane, high value. And um, available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify as all the episodes are available. So without further ado, welcome, Dr. Emily. I'd love for you to say hi and also introduce yourself. Hello, it's so great to be here and great to see you. Thanks so much for having me. All right, so introduce myself, absolutely. So I am a clinical psychologist. I've been studying psychology about 17 years, practicing clinically about 13 years now. But I grew up in Silicon Valley. I've always had an interest in the psychology of the entrepreneur. And what that led me to was an interest in a more proactive approach to mental health. I wanted to figure out how to help people think about their mental health more like going to the gym and less like going to the doctor. Because in our culture, mental health care is very reactive. People are made to feel like you have to wait until things are totally falling apart to get support. But to me, that's a little like waiting until you have early signs of heart disease to do cardio. Ideally, we start these things beforehand and actually prevent some of these issues. So a number of years ago, I did a big research study where I interviewed 100 psychologists and 100 entrepreneurs about what makes someone emotionally healthy. What do emotionally healthy people do? What do they not do? What does that look like? What does that feel like? And what came out of this research are what I call the seven traits of emotional fitness. These are the seven things that emotionally healthy people are working on all the time. And those seven things are self-awareness, empathy, mindfulness, curiosity, playfulness, resilience, and communication. So I started to try to figure out what is an emotional push-up in each of these seven traits and how do you do it? How do you work on yourself a little bit every day? And in addition to having a private practice with a lot of entrepreneurs and founders and overachievers, I also co-founded COA with my amazing co-founder, Alexa Meyer. And COA is a gym for mental health. And at COA, we teach people how to work on their mental health more proactively, how to do their emotional push-ups every day. And we're trying to make working on your mental health as modern and accessible and proactive as working on your physical fitness is. So we have therapist-led emotional fitness classes. We have one-on-one therapy matchmaking, and it's all really rooted in community. So that's a brief overview. I love that. And I love when I think Silicon Valley, um, a place with innovation and tech and a lot of futurism, startups have startup founders have the biggest mental health problems. And we know you work really, uh, startup founders work really hard to like overburn themselves, the hustle culture and how overrepresented mental health is and under talked about in startup founders. And I guess emotional fitness becomes super interesting because it's about how physical health, like you said, the mind gym, I love that. Um, as you would your physical body and, and until you fall, fall into ill health or states and that's super important. So, so 
Um, what Dr. Emily is doing with, with her co-founder at COA is absolutely amazing. We will, we will touch more about it and where it's available. I would definitely tell classes. I remember I did one. It was super, super interesting and super fun. Uh, background. Tell us what psychoanalytic psychologist actually is. Sure thing. So there are a lot of different types of therapy, a lot of different types of psychology. I could never do them justice in this amount of time, but to give a really, really broad stroke overview, a lot of the types of psychology and therapy that people practice can be bucketed into one of two groups. The first group is commonly known as cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT. These are the types of therapy that are really solution focused. They are more manualized they are trying to really help people with symptoms and the idea is that if you change your thoughts that you can change your feelings. And my feeling is that that kind of therapy can be really helpful when the symptom of what you're struggling with is actually a bigger problem than whatever might be causing the symptom. So for example, if you have a phobia or if, you have, uh, if you're struggling with OCD or struggling with an eating disorder, then figuring out how to manage those symptoms is going to be your first priority because you need to make sure that you're in a place where you can function and where you can be safe, et cetera. But the other big bucket of therapy in psychology is called psychodynamic or psychoanalytic therapy. And this type of therapy believes that symptoms are actually pointing to a problem. They are not the problem in and of themselves. And if all you do is fix the symptoms, then you're not treating the thing that really needs your attention. So it's often compared to the idea of a fever. If you have a fever and all you do is fix the fever and you never find out what your body is trying to alert you to, you might actually be doing yourself more harm than good. So similarly, psychodynamic therapy believes that things like depression and anxiety and stress and all of the things that we want help with, those are actually your mind and body trying to tell you that there's a deeper problem, like underlying trauma or relationship issues that need your attention, et cetera. So psychoanalytic therapy believes that the relationship that you have with your therapist is a representative of all the relationships in your life and that you can use that relationship to understand who you are in the world and what you need to change. It tends to be a longer term kind of therapy because it knows that however you are in the world, you became that way for a reason. And if it were easy to change that, you would have changed it already. And actually, it's probably going to take some time and some building of safety to be able to make the changes in your relationships and in your life that you want to make. That's super interesting. And so with that, do you think everyone should have a therapist? Only individuals now are, are saying it's a must, right, to have a therapist. And how often should you see a therapist as well? So I don't believe that every single person has to be in therapy. I think there are plenty of people who can get through their life in a satisfying and meaningful way without therapy. But I do believe that everyone can benefit from therapy. I don't think there's anyone out there who if they found the right kind of therapy for them and the right therapist would not make some big strides in their life as a result. So I do think everyone should give it a try to see if it feels like it's for them and to see what might be possible when they're given that safe space, because there's really nothing else like it in life where we have this space where we can just focus on what's going on for us, where we can say anything, feel anything, uh, you know, express anything without there being this worry about, the responsibility we have for others in our life. So in therapy, it really is just a space for us. And I think that's very profound. And the other thing is in our culture, we're often not taught how to 
put words to our complicated emotions. We're not always given the space and support we need to lean into discomfort and to explore the messier parts of ourselves. And so therapy is this really amazing, unique place where we get to do that. And I do think everyone should give it a try. In terms of how often to go, my belief is going less than once a week is not super helpful. Because if you think about it, if you're going less than once a week, then you're really just going to be catching up. You're going to be telling your therapist pretty much just what happened since the last time you saw them. And the other thing about when you go more often is if you think about therapy as trying to get to your more messy, vulnerable, protected parts, you first have to help a person get down their defenses, the defenses that we use to not face those uncomfortable and painful things. So when you go to therapy not very often, then you're working on getting those defenses down and you don't actually get to what's behind those defenses. But when you go to therapy once a week, twice a week, three times a week, things really start to get intense. You get to pick up right where you left off. You don't have to spend every week trying to get those defenses down. You get to get right behind those defenses because they already came down a little bit the last time you met. And you get to address the things that really want your attention, that really need someone to see them and care for them and understand them. So I recommend minimum once a week. But if you're able, twice a week, three times a week, I think that's when things get really juicy and good. I think that's really useful advice. Um, and I saw a tweet of yours, which was really well liked. It was about childhood and behavior and uh, the links there. And I actually shared it today and it got a really good response and people, you know, liking that, that image a lot. Uh, and I found that really interesting how our childhood shapes our psychology, how we think of things. Um, and relationships are a super interesting topic. Um, and it's something I've been focusing on over the last two years, relationship wellness, because uh, I know relationships are so linked to your long-term longevity and happiness and, you know, habits and behaviors. So what would your advice be for uh, couples when you're choosing a partner? Should you be looking at mental health at that point? Should you be um, discussing certain things to do with how someone's had trauma in their past and does that shape a relationship? And then I guess C would be how, what is healthy? How do you maintain a healthy relationship? Is relationship counseling something people should be considering? Is it communication styles that you're learning? And it's a pretty vast question, but I would just love your take on relationships. That kind of, that question that I know, I know you have Logan on your, on your podcast as well from Hinge and, and I'm a big fan of her as well. So it'd be super interesting to get your take. Yeah, absolutely. By the way, there's some construction happening here. So apologies if it's a little loud. <laughs> Go here, don't worry about it. Don't like, worry. <laughs> yeah. So, yes. Yeah, so I did just have Logan from Hinge on my podcast and she was sharing all kinds of really interesting stats about how a huge percentage of people want their partner to talk about mental health, want them to bring up things like therapy, but a very small percentage of people do it themselves. And I think that really speaks to the stigma and the worry about whether or not we'll be accepted in that space. Now, of course, I don't think on a first date you should be unleashing your deepest traumas on someone. I think that it's important that we practice something that I call boundaried vulnerability. Boundaried vulnerability is when we share enough of ourselves with other people that we invite connection, we show that we can be vulnerable, we invite someone to step toward us, but we don't share so much that we wake up with an emotional hangover or that we expect someone to be our therapist when they're not our therapist. 
So I do think sharing something like, yeah, mental health is really important to me and I'm in therapy and it's made a big difference in my life. I think that's a really profound and important thing to talk about early in a relationship because my experience is that when one person is working really hard on themselves and their mental health and the other person hasn't started that journey, it can be really complicated. And more than ever, people are saying that they want a partner who is self-aware and who is committed to working on themselves. Something I say a lot is, I think the old story of relationships was, I'll take care of you if you take care of me. But the new story of relationships should be, I'll take care of me for you if you'll take care of you for me. We're each responsible for our own mental health and well-being. And in order to be in a healthy partnership, I think every person has to take responsibility for who they are in the world and what they might be bringing uniquely to the relationship. So I highly recommend that it's some kind of conversation that you have as you are looking into developing a partnership with someone. And then over time, I definitely recommend things like couples therapy, individual therapy to keep the relationship strong because the relationship we have to ourselves is going to influence the relationship we have to other people and vice versa. And it can be really hard to manage the relationship you have with another person all by yourself. I wish that it was just so much more common and accepted that couples therapy is just a standard thing you do. And I think that it's really useful proactively. Most couples wait until they are on the brink of separation to do couples therapy. But if you start couples therapy when things are mostly good, you're going to prevent a lot of the things that might have caused you to separate later. You're going to develop healthier skills and communication tools. You're going to be able to keep small problems from becoming big problems. You're going to make sure that you're not, you know, uh, blaming each other for things that are actually your own responsibility to understand, etc. So I recommend that being just a standard part of your relationship life, if it's at all possible to do. I absolutely love that, what you've said. And I think skyrocketing it's pretty high in the pandemic we saw it as well and on the same side we saw a lot of loneliness as well so do you think uh, for our mental health when we're in a relationship should we act as individuals or as a partnership and and with that um should we always profess our feelings and emotions vulnerably to our partner is that healthy and how should you respect your partner should you if your partner is uncomfortable with something uh, should you try and make them feel comfortable and not do that, that that thing? Or is that unhealthy? Well, I don't think it's an either-or situation here. I think you have to be a complete individual to have a healthy partnership. A lot of people are seeking this idea of completion from their partner. And really, we have to complete ourselves, as cheesy as that sounds. And I don't think that we can do that by ourselves. We need lovers. We need friends, we need family in order to develop a complete sense of ourselves. But we can't depend on any one person to fill every gap that we have. So I do think individuals have to focus on themselves. And in addition to that, also be prioritizing the health of the partnership. So it's a both and in that situation. In terms of whether or not to talk about those really messy feelings, again, this is complicated because if you are in a romantic partnership, then yeah, the two of you should be able to be open and vulnerable with each other. But I think it's important that there are other spaces that you can explore yourself so that you're not depending on your partner to be your therapist or to help you work through things that they might not be equipped to help you work through. So I personally think the best thing I ever, ever did for my partnership was be an in individual therapy because I had a space to focus on myself, to understand myself, 
And then when I could come to my partner and say, here's what I'm realizing about myself, it was already partially processed. I wasn't dumping this overwhelming, leaky stuff on this person and expecting them to figure it out for me. I was bringing it in a slightly more digestible form. And my partner did the same. And so between both of us working on ourselves in that way, we could bring our healthiest selves to our partnership, show up for each other, support each other on that journey, and still feel like we are in it together. That's a really good approach. And I hope like a lot more people could do that. And I think that's why I think, like you said, Hinge, a lot of apps and relationships are realizing really affect your mental health because the day-to-day thing, things that, you know, um, you're facing and it can be a big um, source of stress, just like our work. We spend a lot of time at work, same with our relationship. So there's two kind of very, um, kind of two um, domains of your life that have big impact on your mental health. And as I find relationships super, super interesting. And I love Dr. Emily's answer there as well. Uh, and Dr. Emily, before we move on to kind of COA, I guess last piece on relationships. So um, do you feel like other aspects of our lives impact our relationship in terms of how healthy it is? And uh, should we block those out? Like what, you know, perceptions of other people? Um, is that something we should take into account? Because I was having a conversation with someone lately. We talk about mental health. We're talking about, you know, uh, how we're perceived. Because I think the, you, I see you as you're a psychologist. You understand the human mind. Um, humans are judgmental, right? And a lot of people say, don't judge anyone. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of the cues are, are cues we take from people that's how we form judgments and perceptions of someone is. So how important do you think is um, the coherence between perception, how someone actually is? And in a relationship, if someone is uncomfortable with something, say a scenario, um, how do you best communicate that to a partner of to, to respect my boundaries or I don't want you to do this? For example, if it's going out, a night out or whatever, uh, what is a healthy way of doing that? Well, I'll address a, a point that you just made about judgment, which I think is really important. I, I do think there's this idea that we're supposed to not be judgmental. And that is just not realistic to me because humans are judgmental creatures. We make judgments in order to try to understand our environments, in order to try to save time, in order to try to stay safe. There are all kinds of reasons why we are set up to make judgments. So I don't think expecting ourselves not to be judgmental is realistic. I do think, though, we can remember that our judgments of other people usually say more about us than they do about them. We are projecting parts of ourselves into other people all the time. If there's someone I find really annoying and I'm judging them, I can promise you there are other people who don't find them really annoying. And so part of my annoyance about that person is about me and what they trigger in me. So I try to remind myself when I feel judgmental to use it as an opportunity to check into myself. Uh, to check in with myself. Why am I feeling this right now? What am I getting stirred up within myself by this person? What does my judgment of this other person teach me about myself? And I almost always learn something interesting when I go through that process. So that I think is really important. But um, can you repeat what the second part of your question was? Yeah, that's a really good answer. I love how you answered that actually. And and it sets up the second part really well. So the second part was... um, Based on that, so obviously, you know, we're in a world of personal branding and perceptions are a big thing more than actual expertise and things like that. So similarly, you know, in in relationships, people have different values and different viewpoints, right? And if an individual, say, say your partner professes, hey, I don't want you to be friends with this person, right? They made that statement. Is you as an individual, should you 
respect your partner and obey that? Or should you kind of stand up? Like, what is a healthy behavior? And that's something I get asked most about the app we're developing, things like that. Like, what is the healthy boundary there? I think the healthy behavior is to be able to have conversations with your partner about what they're feeling, what their worries are, and how you can meet each other's needs without completely giving up your own. So I think if a partner were to say, I don't want you to be friends with this person, I would say, oh, tell me more. What are you feeling worried about? What does my friendship with them trigger in you? Or what does it bring up in you? What what could happen? And most of the time, I would imagine it's less about that particular person, more about an anxiety or worry that the person has. So my number one piece of advice is get really comfortable talking to your partner about things, sharing your worries and your feelings with them, and leaving room for the idea that it's not our job to keep our partners from feeling tough things all the time. You know, jealousy is a really good example of that. I think there's this common idea that you should never do anything that makes your partner jealous. And I think that's a problem. I think instead we should be saying it's our job to understand our jealousy and to process our jealousy and to talk about our jealousy with our partners so that we can know is this actually something that the person should stop doing or is it something that it's my job to process and my job to work through and deal with. So I think the underlying idea here is Lots of communication, lots of talking, and lots of taking responsibility for the things that we bring to a partnership. I think that's great advice. And now I want to move on and focus on COA. So based in Silicon Valley, uh, what is COA? What is the concept? And I know you mentioned at the start of the podcast, but I really want to kind of focus in where are you guys going with COA? How's it going? And what's the future of mental health in Silicon Valley? Right. So COA, like I said, is a gym for mental health, and we are helping people with proactive mental health care. We do this through these therapist-led emotional fitness classes that I think are really amazing. And you join as a member. You're a gym member. You can take classes whenever it works well for your schedule. There's on-demand content. There's all kinds of ways of engaging with people. And I'm, I'm really proud of what we've created. And a lot of it is coming from a reaction to the state of mental health tech in general, which I think is really problematic. And we're seeing a lot of stuff on the news right now about why mental health startups are problematic. And I agree. I think it has a lot to do with the idea that what is best for an individual person is not always going to be aligned with what makes the most money or that scales the most quickly. And it can be really tempting as a startup to grow at all costs. But when it's individual lives and minds and relationships that are at stake, that can be really problematic. And so for me, when I started COA, my number one North Star has always been clinical integrity. It's always been to make sure that I can really stand behind everything we're putting out there, that I can be proud of it, and that everything that we're doing is based in psychological theory and is being offered by people who are true psychology experts. So at COA, I think what distinguishes us from a lot of the other offerings out there is, first of all, we are a more proactive approach. So we are helping you prevent a lot of mental health struggles, and we are helping you build your resilience muscles and make mental health an ongoing part of your life. The second thing that distinguishes us is that we are community-based. So we're really trying to Use technology to increase relationships, not replace relationships. We want you to be in actual rooms with actual people supporting each other, not just in an app by yourself, feeling more alone than ever. And one of the things we say is emotional fitness is an individual journey, but a communal pursuit, meaning you do have to do your own work. No one can do it for you. But it's a lot easier to do that work when you're doing it alongside other people who are also committed to emotional fitness. 
And then finally, the third thing that distinguishes us is our commitment to clinical integrity. Everything that we do is really thoughtful. We try to be just as thoughtful with our internal team as we are with our product. We don't sell customer data as a way of making money. We respect confidentiality. All of the things that I learned through my work are important for therapy. We try to instill in our overall offering because that's what works. That's what's going to make the big difference long term. And I think what we offer is better experience than explained. So I really suggest that people just come try us out. Come join uh, uh, the membership for a month. You could probably take all our classes in one month if you really wanted to. So there's no downside to giving us a try. And actually, if you use the code emotional fitness, oh no, sorry, emotionally fit, you'll get 50% off your first month. So it's a really low stakes way to, to see if it's for you and if emotional fitness is something you're ready to integrate into your everyday life. That's a great offer. Really appreciate it. So for all the Human Behavior Show members and podcast listeners, there's a code for you. Um, I'll probably put it in the show notes as well. Um, definitely try out COA. Um, I think I joined the founders class for COA and that was really good. I think it was like six of us in the session. And I found it super useful as, at that time. You know, as a few arguments with my co-founder, we were trying to figure it out. We were new to being startup founders and that's always a difficulty, you know, planning leadership and delegation from friendship, that transition of a relationship. I found it super challenging actually. I was managing all my success on other things as well. It was like, what do I prioritize? So that definitely helped me. So I definitely recommend it. So Emily, COA seems super cool. And I'm, I'm glad we have more authentic companies addressing it. Because as you're right, how many meditation apps can we have, right? Meditation is important, but it can't solve all our issues, right? We can't have headspace for everything. So I think that's a really interesting point you've made. So also you tweet a lot about mental frameworks, you know, heuristics, things like that. Um, do you think, if we learn those things, we're better prepared to A, build relationships, B, manage our expectations, and C, just be part of society. Well, I think those things are nice tools, but they're not the solution in and of themselves. I think they are a way to move toward the solution. I think if we want to heal, what we need to get more comfortable with is being uncomfortable, having tough conversations, facing complicated feelings, sitting in the discomfort of being human, that's how we move toward healing. And the tools and heuristics and frameworks can be really helpful as a way of doing that. But ultimately, we are never going to have a quick fix or silver bullet to our mental health. The truest and best way to have good mental health is to work on it a little bit every single day for the rest of our lives. And that can seem really overwhelming. But if you think about physical health, it's the same. You know, there's no one diet pill. There's no one weekend berries boot camp workshop or anything like that that's going to make you perfectly physically healthy it has to be an ongoing practice and that's true of our mental health as well we need to work on it a little bit all the time and commit to leaning toward those more vulnerable parts of ourselves so that we can show up as our best selves every day I think that's a great advice to kind of be rounding things off. Um, I think it's a continuous challenge. We'll have ups and downs. And it's how we equip ourselves to manage it. And, and you're right. Um, there's, there's different ways we can, you know, approach professionals and, and what you're doing at COA provides that, you know, that mental wellness aspect as well before you fall into any form of illness. So what is your take? I think finally, as, as we're coming to the end, what is your take on things like mood tracking, for example? I know Amazon Halo announced that earlier this year. Uh, even things like devices for like EEG reading. Do you think they're useful? Do you think um, you know, we'll, we'll get somewhere with as technology develops with almost measuring 
our mental health or mental wellness? It's complicated because I think it could be a useful tool. Again, I think it's a tool to have in your toolbox. Our, our emotional memories tend to be very selective in the sense that we, when we're feeling down, it can feel like we've always felt down and that we always will feel down. And it can be helpful to look at a tracker and say, oh, you know what? That's actually not true. Even last week, I was feeling really good. I wonder why I forgot that. So there's definitely something useful about it. My worry is that a lot of these companies are putting these out there as the solution, that this is all you need. All you have to do is track your mood or all you have to do is take this psychedelic once or all you have to do is journal and you'll be good. And I think that's a wild oversimplification. And I think it dishonors how complicated we are as people. And it makes people feel like if they don't get better quickly or easily, that that means there's something wrong with them. And that's not true. There is no person out there who can heal a very complicated thing that took years to develop quickly and easily. So I think we need to normalize that we need to have lots of tools. We need to give it lots of time. We need lots of support and that it's a lifelong journey that we're on. I, I think that's absolutely right. I think a lot of these wearables are obviously tipped as the one one shop stop solution, and, and that's problematic. Mental health is so complicated; so many different approaches, and individuals are so different as well, and so many different levels. That yeah, it has to be a lot more nuanced. So, Emily, how can people do? Do you take clients? How can people book in with you if you, if you have a session? I'd love to know for the listeners. Well, my practice is generally pretty full. But if you live in California or New York, COA does therapy matchmaking in those two states right now. You can go to joincoa.com slash therapy to check that out. Or just come join a class. I think that's a great way to start. All of our classes are taught by licensed therapists. And the classes aren't therapy. We're not asking you to unpack your traumas or anything. But they are a therapeutic kind of experience. So I think that's a great way to go. And then if you want to stay in touch with me, the best way to do that is definitely Twitter. I'm very active on Twitter. My handle is Dr. Emily Anhalt. So Dr. Emily Anhalt. I'd love to see people on there and to engage with all of these ideas and um, to support people with their emotional fitness any way I can. Yeah, I would 100% double that. Follow Dr. Emily on Twitter. It's kind of a, a knowledge bank. Every tweet is <laughs> super... Um, um, informative. I definitely love following you on Twitter. Um, and any, 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 any thoughts of writing a book or something like that of all your thoughts and ideas? I am in the process of writing a book on emotional fitness I right now, <laughs> hoping that comes out sometime in the near future. Um, and in the meantime, we have various things that are, you know, being posted on different news sites, etc. So follow me on there to keep track of that. And I just really appreciate you having me on here for everything you're doing to support the community and um, grateful. Thank you. Thank you, Emily. No, really appreciate you, all the good work you're doing. And it's been great to connect with you. And, you know, for about a year now, I've been following you and, and, and been able to talk and things like that. And I think that's what's important. I think if, if health professionals can come together and, and voice the importance of almost the next pandemic, which is mental health, right? In a connected world. And, and actually, finally, before I let you go, I want your opinion. Social media, mental health, good thing, bad thing, or nuanced. And explain. <laughs> Oh, it's complicated. It's always an it, it depends answer. I think social media has brought some really beautiful things into my life, into people's lives. We're able to connect with people we wouldn't normally have connections with. We are able to get ourselves out there in really profound ways and express ourselves. And at the exact same time, it causes a lot of distress. It's very hard to have this comparison mindset where we feel like, what we have to say isn't valid unless it gets likes and retweets, et cetera. So I think that can be 
really dangerous. And then also, I don't know if our brains evolve to process this much information every single day when something bad happens in the world and you're told about it a hundred different times, a hundred different ways. It can be really overwhelming. So I would say just like anything out there, something in small doses can be great for us and in huge doses can be bad for us. I think we have to modulate our relationship to social media to be something that is additive instead of destructive. And what that looks like for any individual will be different. So we have to explore that and take the responsibility to try to make sure that we are developing a healthy instead of harmful relationship with it. So moderation is the answer and using it in the right ways. I think that's the best answer. I was actually in a Harvard class once online and, and the professor asked me that <laughs> and he was like children's mental health and Facebook. And I was like, actually, well, it depends because a lot of people I know also benefit. They get more motivated with social media, seeing someone worked out, you want to work out. It depends how you use it and who you follow and um, what benefits. So I think, yeah, ups and downs of everything. So guys, that was Dr. Emily from COA, psychoanalytic psychologist here with us today on the podcast, the human behavior show. Super grateful for her coming on. Do follow her Twitter um, as well as Koa, great company. You can have matchmaking for therapy right there. Um, and I've really enjoyed this conversations. I'm really into the relationship, wellness, and mental health triangle right now, figuring that out. So, Emily, I'm sure I'll be touching base with you. Uh, I know you're a message away, but super appreciate it. Thank you for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Great. And guys, this will be available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So, do subscribe also here on Colin. Grateful to people at Colin for producing an app which is so easy to publish my podcast so that was it guys from the human behavior show catch you guys in the next episode see you bye